0: Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you're anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Brought to you as always by Skyway Acquisition. Check out Skyway ACQ for more info there. Today we're talking about the legal arrangements that companies put in place when they want to work together, and I've got a special guest. Okay, Shane, why don't you introduce yourself?
1: My name is Shane McCall. I'm the managing partner at Cooperance Law in Lawrence, Kansas. where are a government contracting firm. Uh, and I also edit our blog, smallgovcon.com, where you provide updates
0: and legal news on federal contracting issues. Excellent. Okay, let's get this episode started. There are many reasons why companies might decide to work together. And most of the time, it takes more than a handshake agreement to implement that, to make it happen. Today, Shane and I are going to talk about a few common types of legal arrangements that companies use to create those boundaries and, and, and a rule set for how the collaboration between companies will operate. We're going to talk about three different types of arrangements, and Shane, I'll let you introduce them.
1: Sure. The three main ones we wanted to talk about are a team teaming agreement a joint venture, and MetaProtégé. And and the interesting thing about them is that they can be used in concert between two different companies, for instance, depending on what solicitation they wanna go after. And I'll mention a few things about each one. A teaming agreement is an agreement to submit a proposal between two or more companies, usually two different companies. One company is gonna be the prime contractor and one company is going to be the subcontractor, and they agree on how they're going to go after a proposal.
0: So, so this is before a contract is signed. There's no subcontract, so this is where the companies agree: hey, we're going to work together, and if we win, we will sign a formal contract subcontract type thing to bind us for that job.
1: Exactly. Uh, it's it's not necessarily required, but a lot of companies want to have that understanding before they submit a proposal together, where. The prime contractor name is going to be on that proposal, and so is the subcontractor. They're not sure if they want a subcontract because they haven't won the award, so they can't really legally do a subcontract, but they want to have an agreement as to how they're going to go after that proposal and then roughly how the work is going to be split up between the two parties if they do win that contract.
0: That is the traditional like prime-sub-relationship. Another way they could work together is through a joint venture, which is a more formal combination of the company's capabilities. Am I saying
1: that right? That's exactly right. The the two companies are going to jointly serve as the prime. And interestingly, in some cases you could have more than two companies, but we'll we'll kind of keep it simple. <laughs> in most in most cases you got two companies and they're going to jointly work together almost on an equal playing field in some cases they could sort of be on the playing field and both serve as the prime contractor the interesting thing though is that with the joint venture you're commonly going to have a separate legal entity you know two companies get together and they form a separate llc or limited liability company they register that with with the state that they're located in and then that separate legal entity is going to be listed on the proposal as that is the prime contractor. So it it really smushes together and combines their forces in a really close arrangement, whereas in a teaming agreement, there's a clear separation. It's clearly defined who's in charge and who's not in charge, subcontractor being the one not in charge.
0: Yeah, I imagine a teaming agreement easier to unravel if you decide to go your separate ways or, or change the arrangement than a joint venture is.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, with the teaming agreement, you're saying, Hey, if we win this, this is probably how we're going to split things up. But with the joint venture, you're forming this separate entity and probably having a little bit more definition of how the the voting and and decisions are going to be made. But uh, by the same token, we, we do have a lot of clients that they start a joint venture, they create an entity. It's not, you know, it's not too much work to go through that process. And they kind of just have it ready to go after that uh, perfect contract or that ideal contract that they want to win and combine forces on. So you can do a tri venture and just kind of have it be ready and waiting for the right solicitation to go after.
0: A third way that companies can combine is called a mentor-protege agreement. And this is where the mentor is a large business that has a protege that is a small business that that, that makes sense if, if i'm using the words right there
1: yeah it, exactly right the mentor protege arrangement can actually encompass both uh, the mentor and protege working together and having a teaming agreement and the mentor and protege working together and having a joint venture so it's sort of a it's kind of like an overlay or superstructure over the arrangement between the mentor and protégé, and really what it allows them to do is have closer uh, assistance coming from the mentor to protégé, and closer relationship than would be allowed under the the Small Business Administration rules and the government contracting regulations that typically require companies to not be too closely related. So, you know, we talk about the concept of affiliation. And, you know, we don't want to go too far into the weeds on affiliation, but if two companies get too close together and they are found to be affiliated, then the company is no longer a small business and cannot go after small business set-asides, which the one of the main reasons for doing a mentor protege is it really lets that mentor who is often a large business have access to those small business pools of the government contracting market and kind of get a piece of that pie, while at the same time, helping out the small business who's getting the reliance on the past performance and on the expertise of that mentor, and it allows them to reduce the risk that they become affiliated and therefore not be able to access the small business set asides.
0: Yeah, you don't want to accidentally become too affiliated. You need to plan that out ahead of time so that you don't get over that threshold and have the government say, Hey, congratulations, you're not a small business anymore.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's not, not something you want to find out after the fact that you actually are affiliated it does happen, but the job of the companies and, and uh, their advisors to uh, avoid it, if at all possible.
0: Okay, Shane, let's dive in a little deeper on teaming agreements. In in the FAR, they're called, It's they talk about teaming arrangements, not teaming agreements, but in the on the industry side, I've never heard anyone say arrangement. It's always teaming agreement. Anyway, when... Might you use a teaming agreement?
1: I think uh, one of the common examples or scenarios where you might look at a teaming agreement is in a, in a construction project or in the construction industry. Um, and without getting too far into the weeds, you know, you have a different uh, limitations on subcontracting that uh, a company can use for different types of projects. So, what that basically means is that in construction you're going to have subcontractors doing a lot more of the work than maybe you could in a services contract, like a, like an IT contract. Right. So if you can allow these subcontractors to do a lot more, more of the work that's encouraged in those type of projects. And so you might want to use a, a teaming arrangement, a teaming agreement because you're going to have one prime contractor that's going to be the contact person and, and the uh, main negotiator with the government but then you're going to need the skills of a lot of different trade contractors to perform different parts of that project. Yeah.
0: In the, in the non construction world, maybe, maybe it's the same in the construction world, but in the non construction world, teaming agreements are often used to build fences around. You get this kind of work. Sub a you're going to do, if any work on this contract involves, um, but well plumbing, if you're doing construction, even though I'm going back to that, you get all the plumbing work. You, you, contractor B, you get all the roofing work, and by the way, if these guys over here, they're going to get two people to do consulting work, and that's it. They're not going to branch into anything else. So it, in my experience, seeming agreements are, are used to to kind of paint the lanes on the on the road of, of where each contractor's responsibilities are going to lie.
1: Yeah, I think it's when you want to know who's in charge... And who has to listen to the other party? Uh, then you want to go with a teaming agreement, yeah. uh, a prime contractor and the subcontractor, because then everyone knows from the outset. There's no confusion, there's no ambiguity, and there's no further defining of the roles. It's clear the prime contractor is in charge of that contract, and you know within the bounds of the subcontract, the subcontractor has to listen to what what the prime contractor is telling them to do. So if that's the type of uh, arrangement that the two companies want and they want to go with the team arrangement yeah,
0: for sure yeah. you want to get that agreed to up front so that you don't get to the point where you win the work and then and for everyone's arguing about who's going to do what and how much of what and how right you you get all the terms and conditions laid out ahead of time so that when you get to the subcontract it's it's kind of pre-negotiated
1: you're exactly right um, ideally you'd have a lot of those things worked out ahead of time I was gonna say it's it's also kind of a Preview of how their relationship is going to work. If the companies can get together and negotiate on the teaming uh, agreement, then it's likely they're going to be able to easily negotiate or more easily negotiate when it comes to the subcontract. When little disputes come up, it, it lets them work out how they're going to deal with those disputes down the road.
0: <laughs> it's it's sort of like a prenuptial agreement. If you if you're having trouble negotiating the prenuptial agreement, maybe maybe the uh, marriage isn't going to go so well. <laughs>
1: Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> Although on the other hand, you know, having those things all laid out yeah. uh, and then the parties know this is how it's going to work. So we know if we can live with that. We can live with this on the um, Working with the teaming arrangement, we can live with them later on. Yeah.
0: What do they say? <laughs> good fences make good neighbors?
1: <laughs> Knowing the rules yeah, exactly. ahead of time.
0: <laughs> What's some of the downsides of teaming agreements?
1: Well, from the uh, from the subcontractor view I think that the downside of the teaming agreements it and maybe it seems kind of obvious but as a subcontractor you're kind of at the beck and call of that prime contractor so if there's something that you want to have a, a role in or some sort of seat at the table then you need to make sure that is in the subcontract or at least uh, in the teaming agreement ideally so that later when you when you come up with that subcontract you've already, had some buy-in, had some agreement from the prime contract. Yeah.
0: And it, like we were talking about, it takes a little more time up front because you have to negotiate something prior to the contract. And an, another little downside is the government could frown upon your teaming arrangement if two of the major suppliers in an industry are teaming up for one bid, the government may consider that sort of a, an antitrust violation you're if you're limiting their competition if you're making it so they can't get the most competitive price because all of the major players that that do a certain thing or make a certain thing are on the same team, the government may not like that
1: yeah it's a definite it's a definite concern you'd have to kind of make sure you're still allowing for competition when you do these um, prime sub arrangements and one other little thing to keep in mind is. For a particular solicitation and how the agency is reviewing uh, past performance or corporate experience, it may look differently on whether the entity is performing as a subcontractor or performing as part of a joint venture. Uh, So the one disadvantage of that prime sub relationship is they're definitely going to know the government, that is, that the, the subcontractor has a sort of lesser role in the overall proposal. And so they may give a little bit less credit to the subcontractors past performance in some cases. Yeah.
0: That's a, that's a really good point. Since you talked about the difference there in a joint venture, let's move on and get into joint ventures a little more. When might you use a joint venture as opposed to a prime sub relationship with a teaming agreement?
1: You know, often the joint venture is used if two companies want to work and submit proposals on multiple contracts going forward. They kind of want to have an ongoing relationship. So they have a joint venture that allows them to bid on on different proposals kind of repetitively. The other reason why they might want to use a joint venture is if they want to ensure the government's going to look at the past performance and the corporate experience and capabilities of both parties and kind of view them on equal footing, Because both of those members of the joint venture are going to be viewed as prime contractors on that particular proposal. So they may get an evaluation advantage looking at the capabilities of both parties. Whereas if one was the prime and one was the subcontractor, the government may think, well, we're not getting the full capabilities of that subcontractor on this proposal.
0: So the joint venture is a separate legal entity, but both companies get to take credit for its performance?
1: Yeah, both companies get to count it as a prime contract and serving as the prime contractor. It's sort of a, we call it a legal fiction, which means it's treated as if they were both prime contractors, even though it's sort of hard to imagine the two companies as a prime contractor it doesn't doesn't quite fit with kind of common sense but unless you do it
0: a legal fiction is what you said right
1: yeah Uh little, Love one it. of those little buzzwords that man Let's and it happens all the time but this is another example hey we're gonna view it this way they're both prime contractors even though it seems like normally you'd only have one prime contractor
0: so it sounds like that could have a few disadvantages what when might you not want to use a joint venture or when could it could it cause problems for you
1: you know i've seen it uh cause hiccups or problems with some clients because they really have to define within that joint venture entity who is going to be in charge uh so you know there's two parties and you don't want to have a deadlock on all these disagreements so even though we say yeah they're treated equally they're both count as prime contractors from an operational standpoint or when they're actually performing they have to know well how are we going to make these decisions how are we going to have these votes and, and decide these things so you do have to define all those things whereas with the prime sub relationship it's sort of built into the whole setup the premise is one's in charge the other one's not in charge with a joint venture you have to then define those things as, as you create your uh, joint venture
0: agreement, as you create your documents for how things are going to operate. So if you thought the upfront work was a lot on a teaming agreement, then (laughs) on a joint venture, it's like another level of, of effort uh, prior to get it all set up to make sure that after a contract or contracts are awarded, that you don't have a bunch of infighting and confusion.
1: Yeah. You, you, you don't want to leave those things to kind of fester and think about them later, in some ways, yeah, with both of these, you're going to want to have some important discussions with your with your counterpart and, and define those things.
0: Okay, that's teaming agreements and joint ventures. Let's move on to mentor-protege. What's the difference between a mentor-protege and the teaming arrangement and joint venture that we just talked about?
1: Well, a mentor-protege arrangement allows uh, the more experienced company, the mentor, who's often uh, a large business for purposes of small business administration size rules, allows that large business that has more experience in the industry to closely work with a protege company, uh, a small business with less experience, allows them to closely work with that company, provide all sorts of assistance including buying equity of that small business to provide capital, mm. um, things like other financial assistance that can be help with bonding, uh, loans from the mentor to the protege, all sorts of technical assistance like training, learning uh, or getting certified in certain techniques such as you know if you're in the construction industry, providing te- techniques on estimating or things like that. Yeah. In the business development category they can provide assistance with identifying what proposals to go after meeting and networking with with government contacts and then you know the probably the most common thing that a mentor and protege do is is form a joint venture so it kind of yeah. circles back but the, the the key advantage of the mentor-protege relationship is that there is an exception to affiliation, kind of like what we were talking about earlier. You want to avoid becoming affiliated because that small business can lose its small business set-aside status. If you do things through a mentor-protege, you can get an exception to affiliation so that if you're closely working with that protege and providing lots of different assistance, it's not going to lead to affiliation.
0: Did a truck just drive by or something? I just heard a... A, a low rumbly sound. Yeah,
1: that might have been a truck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the mentor protege program sounds well named to me. Sort of, sort of a bigger company puts its arm around a smaller company and says, "I'm going to help you grow." And or I'm going to help you learn as opposed to a subcontracting prime relationship where you you would still learn, but there'd be more of an arm's length learning arrangement. And the mentor protege agreement allows the companies to, to interact more closely and, and maybe share more information than you might in, in, w- without that close connection.
1: Right. And I think one of the ways that companies we work with use a mentor protege is if they want to team up on multiple uh, proposals uh, over, you know, over multiple years. So in the small business administration mentor protege program, there's a six-year window you get your mentor protege agreement approved by the small business administration and then you have six years to provide all these different types of assistance and do joint ventures together and and do uh, teaming arrangements together and one of the big advantages that a lot of mentor protege teams take advantage of is the large business can do a joint venture with the small business and go after small business contracts they can also go after other what we call socioeconomic designations such as the service disabled veteran on small business Program. so you know for example you have a large entity that's very you know has a lot of experience active in the industry and wants to team up with a a sdvsb service Disabled veteran on small business if those two companies then form a joint venture the only way it can qualify for SDVOSB set aside contracts is if they are doing that as part of a mentor protégé agreement. So it's a lot of them to unpack there, but <laughs> that's one of the that's one of the main benefits of the mentor protégé arrangement. Large business can team up with a, a an A company or yeah. a women on small business, and if they have an approved mentor protégé arrangement, then they can then bid together on these socioeconomic set aside, such as women on small business program.
0: So it sounds like teaming agreements and joint ventures are something that companies can do at will as they desire. And mentor-protege m- agreements require the government, the Small Business Administration in particular, to agree to it. It's a more, more formal government-regulated type, type of thing.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's not. I uh, mean, in most cases, it's not a too difficult of a approval process. But you have to kind of get your ducks in a row, know the timeline. Uh, for instance, I think lately the the Small Business Administration has been saying that these minor protege agreements can take about ninety days to approve. So we have clients that say, you know, when's the solicitation proposal deadline? Start with that day, date and then, you know, go back 90 days. And of course you have to lay all that groundwork for what is the company I want to work with. And probably, you know, these things happen over months or years. You, the, the mentor may have subcontracted or done a teaming arrangement with a potential company that could be a protege. And that's how they get to know them. And then yeah. once they realize that uh, prime sub relationship worked well, then they have talks about, becoming a mentor to that company so that they can get more closely involved and even maybe become an owner of that that small business once the mentor-protege agreement is approved.
0: Okay, Shane, let's wrap this one up by reminding folks that there are a lot of rules involved in teaming agreements and joint ventures and mentor-protege agreements, and those rules change on a regular basis. There may even be specific rules for a solicitation,
1: yeah, that's true. So you, not only does the two companies involved have to be aware of uh, some of these changing rules like under the Small Business Administration under the Federal Acquisition Regulation, uh, but they also need to look at a particular solicitation they're going after. I've seen a number of solicitations over the years, uh, such as you know the GSA Oasis solicitation that had specific uh, documentation and provisions that had to be in a joint venture agreement that were not found in the typical small business administration joint venture regulations. So not only do you have to look at the basic rules for SBA and FAR compliance for joint ventures, but you have to look at that particular solicitation to make sure there's not any additional things you need to have in your joint venture agreement to meet those solicitation requirements.
0: That makes me think two things. One, wow, you could go to a lot of effort putting together a joint venture and still not be able to bid on what you meant to bid on. And number two, it sounds like somebody who went to all the trouble of putting together a joint venture got the government folks, shaped the acquisition and got the government folks to put some specific rules about joint ventures in the solicitation so they'd have a competitive advantage. That's the cynical Paul talking there.
1: <laughs> yeah, very true. Yeah. Some of these and sometimes that's more on these on these really big multiple yeah. award IDIQs where you're where you're gonna have to watch out for those joint venture specific rules. A lot of your typical one-off type contracts, uh, aren't going to have too many of those, but it's always good to make sure there's no specific joint venture requirements in any solicitation you're looking at.
0: All right. That's a great point to, to end this one on a, on a solid note like that. Shane, thanks for being a guest on the podcast today. If our listeners would like to get in touch with you, how would they do that?
1: Paul, I I really enjoyed being on the podcast today. I appreciate the opportunity. If someone has more questions or wants to learn more about joint ventures, teaming agreements, or mentor-protege agreements, they can go to our blog, uh, smallgovcon.com, where there's legal news and updates to check out, or they can find me on LinkedIn.
0: All right, Shane, this was great. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks again to our guest, Shane McCall, and to our sponsor, Skyway Acquisition. When you're ready to build a relationship for consulting and mentoring from Skyway's team of former contracting officers, go to skywayacq.com or give us a call at 877-884-5280. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next week.